Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to another Pain Talk podcast. We're right in the middle of the Christmas season, heading into the new year. I'm pretty excited about uh, uh, what's going to happen in 2020. Let's get started. So what we're going to do is we're going to dig into a really complicated topic, but I think such an important topic, and I don't think it gets enough attention. When I was talking to Dr. Gerling in the previous podcast, it really came up for me around urine drug screening or urine drug monitoring. Sometimes we refer to that as urine drug testing, but we like to think of that as screening or monitoring, just like we do with other types of testing or screening in patients or monitoring in patients. I always bring the conversation back to uh, some of the anti-clotting or anti-coagulation medications that we use every day in clinical practice, like Coumadin or Warfarin, like aspirin, things like that. So urine drug screening and monitoring is really about uh, looking at how we use that tool every day in our clinical practice when we're using pharmacology that is high risk. So you're trying to find that balance between safety and also ensuring that the patient is getting uh, good quality care. So we're going to dig into urine drug testing, uh, urine drug screening. I'll try and correct myself. I always tend to see, see myself talking testing, but really what we're doing is screening and monitoring. So what we're going to cover is what is it? Uh, Why do we do it? And more importantly, what do we do with the information that we find once we actually do the testing or the screening? And I suspect that many of you out there um, are really not doing this in your clinical practice, even though it is the the standard of care, the recommendation. And I'll share with you some data that I was able to uh, dig up. Um, But also share with you that once we start incorporating this skill within our clinical practice that we can actually help reduce the risk of conditions like opiate use disorder, but also keeping uh, our clients safe and uh, hopefully maximizing their therapies. The other issue around urine drug monitoring and screening is the confidence that we feel in interpreting those results. And we're going to dig into that as well, because those are really important considerations and concerns. I wonder how many of you think are actually doing it out there. I think if I put it out there, most would probably say that probably a very small percentage, and you would be absolutely right. So the the evidence tells us that less than 8% of clinicians who prescribe high-risk pharmacology actually routinely use urine drug screening in their practice. If the patient, however, is on long-term opiate therapy, and this is where most of the studies have looked is in opiate therapy, that number goes up to 15%. And there's lots of reasons, as we mentioned, the cost of doing these tests in our clinical practice, but also the convenience of doing it. Where do you get the patient to actually give us a sample? And how confident do you feel in interpreting those results? So those are all things that become up, come up often and are very important. But the evidence shows us that if we can incorporate urine drug screening or monitoring in our practice, we can actually impact care. What we can do is we can actually reduce the risk of substance use disorders by about 16%. And that may seem like a small number, but that can be huge in terms of the life of an individual uh, who has developed some complications related to their substance use, in particular opiates. And just to remind us that opiate use disorder or opiate addiction is actually a life-threatening complication of opiate use. It is not a moral or ethical failing. I put it in the same framework as I think about when I think about Coumadin. So when I'm actually monitoring my patient who's using Coumadin, I use INRs, and what I'm trying to do is prevent the most life-threatening complication of that medication, which is a massive hemorrhage or a massive bleed. 
by itself, obviously, it's not uh, 100%. It's not really uh, robust data. 16% is uh, still important. But if you combine urine drug screening and monitoring with that treatment agreement, uh, with pill counts and education, that you're really trying to keep that patient safe, it can actually reduce the risk of substance use disorder by 50%. And this includes all comers, including palliative care. And that usually is a very hot topic area. And people would assume that if you're prescribing opiates for pain like cancer pain, that we really shouldn't be monitoring patients. But in fact, this population is also very much at risk. We need to understand that we're diagnosing and treating patients much earlier in the trajectory of their disease. So for many patients, and you look at something like breast cancer, that condition can go on for many, many years. And thank goodness that our treatments are actually improving outcomes. It would be horrible for that patient to develop a complication of their opiate uh, use, develop addiction and die actually of addiction and not die of their cancer, which is really what the risk is. So that patient who's given a diagnosis of cancer who's also being prescribed opioids, who's not getting monitoring or screening, goes on to develop an opiate use disorder, that patient is more likely to die of their addiction before they are to die of their cancer. So we need to understand that we can actually contribute to two life-threatening conditions, not just one. The other thing to think about when you're monitoring, so it's not just the palliative care population. You can have an elderly patient who's been compliant and adherent to the medication. And um, if you've not done that urine drug testing, What's actually happening under the ground is that there may be some spouse or, or elder abuse in that family, that these medications are actually being taken by one of their children who are struggling with a substance use disorder. And that elderly person, either through shame or through fear, is not going to disclose that. Now, when you do that screening in your office, and we're going to dig into that, it's important how you interpret that information. So you don't want to really jump in there and assume that the uh, the individual who the medication is being dispensed to or prescribed to is not taking it. But you need to start thinking about elder abuse, spousal abuse, poverty, or other motivators that can cause patients to divert or not take their medication. Um, the other thing that we've often found, especially in palliative care, and I'm sure uh, individuals who take care of patients at the end of life will also attest to this, is that if you're prescribing high-risk pharmacology in someone with cancer, and you put in that obituary that that patient, uh, uh, what time that patient's funeral is, you know, when the, and so they're going to assume, okay, there's not going to be any family in that house. And so there's more risk of somebody breaking into that house to steal those medications. So that's another discussion that we can talk about. But uh, that family can get identified or that individual can get identified within a community, especially a small community in a rural area, that they have medication. And if that individual is struggling with a substance use disorder, it makes these really good people do really dumb things and break into houses and take that medication. So it is important that we're monitoring and screening uh, all comers who are being prescribed high-risk pharmacology, in, in particular opioids. So if you remember anything from this podcast, the most important thing I want you to take home is that urine drug monitoring or urine drug screening should always be done for patients and not to patients. Your goal is to improve the safety of the patient and the safety of the community and the public. So I'm going to repeat that. Urine drug monitoring or screening should always be done for patients and not to patients. All right. So what is it? It is a tool. And we've reinforced that as we've, as we've talked along here. Uh, it's the same as all other monitoring and diagnostic tools that we use in clinical practice. We attach a lot of emotion 
to doing this kind of testing, but we have to see it as a tool in our toolbox. It is only one particular aspect of what we use in the clinical setting. So it's going to help guide your therapy. And in the end, what you're hoping is that it's going to improve patient care. And the patient care improvement really comes in terms of how we communicate and how we talk with patients about what this tool can be beneficial for. So if we look at the Canadian guidelines for safe and effective opiate use, it really is seen as a standard of care. And it should be incorporated routinely and randomly in the care of the patient. So what I mean routinely is the patient can expect, depending on the situation, we'll talk about that as we go along, that they can expect you to do a routine screening maybe once or twice a year. If it's a high-risk patient, obviously you're going to do it more frequently. And sometimes this urine can be done randomly or a pill count can be done randomly. So the patient doesn't know when it's going to happen, but it's really just to help the patient know that you're doing everything you can to keep them safe. You're really not doing anything to catch them. You're really trying to do it to help keep them safe and keep them alive and also protect their families. So when you frame it around safety, it's really important. Um, and as I mentioned, the goal you're really trying to do is to uh, improve the outcome for patients and also maximize your therapies. How I incorporate urine drug monitoring or screening in my clinical practice, it's really when you look at that six-step approach to pain that I talked about in some earlier podcast. So if we look at, in particular, approach to chronic pain, so if we're using long-term opiate therapy, and obviously the goals are going to be different if I'm using opioids for acute pain, chronic pain, or pain at the end of life. All of them require screening, don't get me wrong, or monitoring, and also managing risk. But typically where we're going to see long-term therapy is in that chronic pain population and also in that palliative care population. So we incorporate it into that sixth step, which starts with listening to the patient's pain story, acknowledging suffering, right? So we uh, need to recognize that what that patient has experienced is unique to them. And it is, it is uh, only they understand what they're experiencing. We just need to be there to acknowledge and uh, help them work through some of the factors that may be contributing to that suffering. We want to make sure that there's nothing new going on when we examine patients, especially if they're coming and looking for escalation in their opiate therapy. I want to maximize non-opiate and non-cannabinoid therapies. I want to risk stratify for harm if opiates or cannabinoids are used to manage pain. So I need to understand that patient's underlying risk as well as the risk within the community that they're in. So their home, do they have teenage kids in their home? Um, are they in a rural community where there may be some uh, concerns around break and enters, you know, things like that. So we're going to help them manage risk. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to manage that risk with them by mapping out an approach to the opioids and cannabinoids. So what is mapping? So the first step in mapping is to monitor substance use for aberrancy. So aberrancy is when they're running out early, even though there can be lots of explanations, but if they're running out early if they're going to the uh, pharmacist and looking for some short-acting opioid like Tylenol number 1, which is over-the-counter, if they're doubling up their medication. So these are some of the things that would be considered aberrancy. And if they're doubling up that medication without your instruction, that's, that's more concerning. If I see aberrancy, I want to adjust the opioid immediately, and we'll get into that. Don't delay it. So what I often see in clinical practice, and my colleagues sometimes, because it's very hard to address it in the sense that it means it's going to be an inconvenience for that patient. But really, if you make it about safety, you'll always come up with the right decision. So yes, there are factors that'll play into this with respect to the family, but you need to respond. So if that patient is getting uh, an opiate prescription once a month and you're seeing aberrancy, you want to decrease the dispensing of that to maybe every week. 
Uh, so it doesn't mean that you can't write the script for a month, but you're only going to give them uh, dispensing for a week at a time or even two weeks at a time. But that can be a predetermined discussion with the patient uh, prior to uh, prescribing opioids. And that's what's really important is that before you're prescribing these opioids, the patient understands what the approach is. And we want to make sure that we're carrying through that approach. And that brings the third step, which is prescribe using principles of harm reduction. So you want to make that priority about safety. The biggest challenge with urine drug monitoring and screening we did mention is really about the potential for misinterpretation and also the potential for a reaction that really may not be appropriate. So a common place that I'll see that is somebody who's being prescribed coding Kant and the urine drug test, uh, urine drug screening comes back positive for morphine. So some clinicians who don't understand the met metabolic pathway of codeine may see that patient as actually uh, taking morphine on top of the codeine when in fact it's a metabolite of codeine. Because codeine is a pro-drug, it's very similar to, to tramadol as we discussed with Dr. Gerling in the last podcast. So that actually would be something I would expect to see. So we need to understand uh, how to interpret these urine drug screens and monitors. Uh, we also need to understand the limitations of those, and we're going to get into this in this podcast, how I should interpret it and how I should use it in the clinical setting. Why do it? Well, if we're doing it in the clinical setting, I don't think I need to go any further into that, but there's lots of reasons why urine drug screening and monitoring is done. And I think the history of this is fascinating, and we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit because I do think it's quite interesting. So you have to step back and say, why am I ordering it? And we're ordering it in clinical practice primarily to monitor the patient, but also to keep the patient and the community safe. But it can be done for forensic reasons. It can be done because of the workplace. Uh, it can be done in athletic situations. Uh, it can be done to look at compliance or even to, to look at the detection of illicit substances. So there's lots of different reasons. But the history of urine drug screening and monitor is fascinating. So when did it all begin? I mean, it's been around since we've been able to do this. But to really understand how it all started, you need to go back to the 1980s around President Ronald Reagan. And what happened is that you had an EA-6B prowler jet, so one of these really fast, sleeth kind of jets that the U.S. uses in wartime that crashed onto a flight deck. And it crashed into a supercarrier called the U.S. NIMS, N-I-M-I-T-Z. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And what happened is it ended up causing 14 deaths and 45 injured uh, servicemen. So the autopsy showed that there was a lot of positive cannabis in the blood of the, I'm sorry, in the urines of the, and blood of those that were injured as well as those that had died. And this was the birth of the zero tolerance drug policy. And we often refer to this as the Federal Five. So it started, and we can thank uh, President Ronald Reagan for all this. So when we look at drug monitoring or drug screening, we really classify it in two different groups. One is the federally regulated testing, and we often talk about the Federal Five, which tests for very specific substances, so marijuana, cocaine, opiates, PCP or LSD, uh, and amphetamines and methamphetamines. And then you have everything else. So everything else which is non-regulated, right, so federally regulated versus non-regulated, uh, is where everything else is classified. So the clinical testing, which is not meant to be punitive at all, it's really meant to be for monitoring. That's where it's housed there, is in the everything else kind of pile. So what's important about the federally regulated testing is that it is a screening test. So we're going to get into some of that as we go along here. 
What can urine drug screening or monitoring do? We did talk about some of the things that actually can happen with this screening, is that it can improve adherence monitoring, that the patient is taking what you're prescribing. It offers greater protection from addiction and diversion. So especially in a patient who's had a previous history of addiction, you want to make sure that you're keeping that patient safe, especially if you're using a condition where opiate analgesics are appropriate in the care of the patient. Now, you want to have that conversation with patient to make sure that they're open to going back on an opiate analgesic because many patients who have been through addiction really do not want to see them come back to that family of medication. But we still need to be able to work with the patient, offer them that treatment, and then we have to make sure that we're keeping them safe. It can also minimize the risk of our iatrogenic addiction. So if you have somebody who is at risk for it but has never had addiction, you want to make sure that you're monitoring that patient to be sure that they are not developing addiction. And, you know, it's no different than if I'm using an anticoagulant drug, and I keep coming back to that because that's the way you want to put it into a healthy context, is that if I have somebody that I've never had complications with bleeding and I put them on, you know, warfarin and all of a sudden they have a massive bleed, then I'm not going to use that medication in that patient. I'm going to probably look at other therapies with that patient, but I'm going to work with them. It can also help you with the initial diagnosis of addiction, but as we know, it's not perfect, right? So there are some challenges. What it can't do, it can't diagnose addiction or diversion with 100% certainty. And it also cannot, with 100% certainty, say the patient has taken the drug that's being detected. So it's really important that we understand that. So when we're doing that preliminary screening, we need to understand that there are certain limitations. There are three ways available to us to monitor or screen a urine. So there's the bedside or the office testing or the stuff that we do in our uh, emergency room sometimes is we do what we call point of care. So the point of care immunoassay, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what that is, it really is just a screening tool. And it really is designed to test what the test is designed to test for. So there are many different types out there. So you need to understand what you're using in the clinical setting uh, and what you're using in your hospital. So sometimes those point-of-care testing are actually done in your own lab. And so you need to think of this as a screening test. So the immunoassays can be a point-of-care at the bedside, in the office, or they can actually be done in the lab. So they're really seen as a screening tool. And when you get a positive in that screening tool, you need to presume it's possible. It is not confirmatory that it is positive. And we'll get into the, some of that as we go along. The confirmatory test is actually the gas chromatography uh, or mass spectrometry. And there's different types of um, confirmatory testing that we will get into in another podcast. But this usually is always done in a lab, and it's usually done in a specialty lab. In Nova Scotia, we only have one lab that does that, and that's in our Halifax lab. So if you're from Halifax and you're wanting to do a confirmatory test on your patient, you can order that from any hospital what you want to do on your, uh, your requisition is you want to say that you want a UDR slash MS. So that should come up in the computers uh, that this is uh, mass spectrometry done in Halifax and that urine will be sent off. Now the challenge obviously is it's not going to be immediate, but I'm going to explain to you why that may become really important, especially in a complex patient. So when you do that immunoassay, you do that initial screening test, don't assume it's positive. Are there some types of substances which gives you a high index of suspicion? If it's there, the patient has probably taken it. Absolutely. And one of those is cocaine. Preliminary is the screening. Those are the immunoassays. The point of care testing are those that are done in the lab. You always want to presume that they're positive. And the next step is always to confirm 
that what the patient is testing for is absolutely there before you make any big changes to their prescribing. Now, what you might do if you have any concerns in that initial screening is you might limit the amount or the quantity of pills that the patient has. Or what I do sometimes is I do that initial screening, don't really react initially, but I would get the pharmacist to actually do a pill count. So if I've given that patient a month prescription, halfway through that prescription, I would get the pharmacist to give the patient a call to bring the pills in so they could do a count, or I could even do that in my office. Now, the patient would have known that prior to me prescribing that that is possible. So it's not something you're just going to put on them out of the blue, but it is important that they understand that the pill counts are part of how we keep them safe and how we monitor them. Why we have to presume that it's positive, the uh, immunoassay, that mindset is so important. It's because of the trust that we need with our patients. We need to feel that we have a trusting relationship, that our intent of doing the screening and the monitoring is really about their safety and about the fact that we do care about them. It also is really important from a medical decision-making, and the stakes are often huge, especially if you're looking at a legal implication or if you're looking at a child custody situation or you're looking at an employment situation. Now, typically with employment, companies will do their own testing, and typically what they'll do is that federal five. Now, their cutoff limits, which we're going to talk about, um, are going to be a little bit different, so we'll dig into that as we're going along here. So do I need consent to do this urine drug testing? Well, ideally, it's important that you do, but just frame it again in terms of an INR. Do you get written consent from your patient to do an INR? You don't. There is explicit informed consent uh, for doing clinical urine drug testing, but you want to have those conversations with patient that it is part of the, the circle of care. It's part of that quality of care that we need to, to deliver, that we need to do this monitoring Um, It's so important, though, to have that conversation. I just normalize it into everything I do, just like I normalize the INR. Most patients do not expect me to adjust their warfarin or to adjust some of their anti-clotting drugs without understanding what their coagulation parameters are. If the patient is refusing testing, which can happen, and they're entitled to do that, they're entitled to refuse uh, urine drug testing, the problem is, is that it's not safe for me to prescribe. It's no different if that patient is being prescribed warfarin and they're refusing me to me to let them do the blood work to make sure that their INR is at the level that I want because the risk is too high. So they need to understand that you cannot prescribe safely. Now, what you can do, you can find other ways of monitoring the patient. Now, it's obviously not easy to do that with an anticoagulant, uh, but with urine drug testing, it may be some random pill counting. Um, It may be limiting them to a daily dispensing or a weekly dispensing, even though that will be more of a burden for that patient. It is the only way that you can safely prescribe. And what I'll often do is sometimes consider switching the patient or doing a taper with the patient. Now, the conversations need to be really important. Each person, it's going to be individual to that person. So I'm not going to do a blanket approach to all patients, but if that patient is refusing to have urine drug testing done, then it's not safe for me to continue to prescribing. So I need to find another way of keeping them safe. So, you know, tapering, tightening, dispensing, uh, and monitoring them through pill counts could be considered. So what do you need to know before you collect a urine drug sample? Well, you need to know what the patient's taking, and that includes over-the-counter, it includes herbal medication, because all of these things can interact with how drugs are metabolized, but also can contribute to some metabolites 
which can actually give you some false positive results. And we'll talk about that. Uh, but be very open, be very non-judgmental. It just, it's just like having a normal conversation that we have with patients when we come from a place of caring and we come, come from a place of consideration for uh, how they're feeling about all this. But it's really important to let them know that you care enough to set boundaries, that this is really not about uh, them, you seeing them as a bad person. It's really about keeping them safe. Sometimes I will ask patients, so we routinely do urine drug monitoring or screening in our testing. It's important for you to disclose everything to me. It's not something that I'm going to use to judge you. It's really something that I'm going to use to keep you safe. So when I work in the opiate recovery program, Patients are really trained to, to let us know what's there because we're not going to judge them. But our reactions are often ones that try to keep them safe. Ideally, you need about 30 mils of urine. Uh, you want to test in less than an hour if you can. If you have a private restroom, that's what you want. Uh, I don't necessarily observe patients, but in high-risk patients, especially if I get a urine that's a little bit iffy, I will have that patient observed. And I want to then, my next step is to validate the specimen. So how do you collect a urine drug sample? Well, it really depends. We talked about the observed or unobserved. Ideally, the early morning is the best, that you, you know, the, in terms of the highest yield of concentration of a substance, as well as those metabolites. But when you get that urine sample, you want to look at it. So you want to see it, you want to shake it, and then you want to submerge it into a point-of-care testing. And if you have any doubts, you want to recollect. So you want to see it. So most urine is usually pale color to clear. When you shake it, you want to make sure there's not a lot of bubbles because what can happen if somebody is going to adulter or change that urine, they're going to use what's close to them. So they're going to use a dilutant like water or they could use soap that's in that room. Uh, so you want to make sure that there's not a ton of bubbles in that urine. And when I submerge it, it's the point of care testing that we're going to talk about initially. So how can urines be tampered with? Oh my goodness. All you need to do, my friends, is just to go online to Dr. Google and say, how can I change the point of care testing in my urine? And it, it's amazing what will come up. And so there are many commercial available kits. There's actually even dried pee that's taken from other patients that can be reinstituted with some warm water. So when the person is in collecting the urine, they can actually reinstitute that with some warm water. Uh, we talked about diluting it, but some of the adulterants that are in there can be vinegar, can be soap, salt, or it can be these kits. So, and the important thing to step back from is patients are not doing this um, to get back at you. These are patients that are often struggling with substance use disorder. So I often see that as an opportunity to have a conversation, but not to judge. It's really important to understand this is not about you as the prescriber. It's where that patient is in their life, how they're struggling with substance use, and they are terrified by far, that you're suddenly going to cut them off or that you're going to do something that's going to put them into withdrawal or to uh, somehow get them in trouble, whether it's a child custody, well, all those things. And all those things have to be weighed into the conversation and, and the, the good and the bad. But this is where you bring the patient into the conversation. And I always come back to the saying, these are really good people doing really dumb things but they are good people at their core. I've not found one person in all the work that I've ever done that has not been a good person, but they are just in a very difficult time in their life. And our job is really to see it as an opportunity, hopefully to save their life. We need to care enough to set boundaries. We need to care enough to have those conversations. So always remember that people, it's, it's incredible to me how sometimes 
prescribers feel very, this is very personal to them, when in fact it's not about them at all. It's about the individual that we're providing care to and where they are in that journey in their life. So some of the kits that uh, I kind of do- did Dr. Google just to have a clue, uh, uh, see what's out there. So, you know, there's uh, one that says pass any drug test, so homemade ways to pass a drug test. So home remedies uh, that you can use, that you can find online, these syn- synthetic uh, peas that we talked about, they can actually do even false uh, penises where it actually demonstrates that somebody is actually looks like they're peeing into a cup uh, with their penis, but in fact they're not. It's actually a fake penis. So there's lots of different things that you'll see out there. And there's all kinds of different cleaners and adulterants that can be bought online. So it is a huge industry. Where you see this a lot is often in uh, workplace types of uh, situations in these federal fives. A lot of people realize that the thresholds to detect certain substances are very high. And so uh, they sometimes can uh, change that urine by adding in certain things to to sort of change how metabolites are happening, how it's being detected, uh, things like that. So what we should see in a urine is that it uh, is usually pale to yellow. We talked about that. The creatinine should be between 20 and 400. If you're seeing something less than five, that is not human urine. So when you're testing your, and this is the milligram per deciliter. Uh, so if you're seeing something less than five, that is not human urine. If you're seeing something less than 20, you're seeing a dilutant, either water or soap. Your specific gravity should be between 1.002 to 1.030. If you're seeing something less than 1.001, that is not human urine. If you're seeing a specific gravity less than 1.002, that is a dilution that's been added in there. Or if you're seeing very, very concentrated urine greater than 1.030, that's also a dilution that's in there. Or you may see some adulterant that is also in there, either it's salt, bleach, vinegar, lemon juice, or a commercially brought product. pH of urine should run between 4.5 to 8.0, less than 3 or greater than 11. That tells you that something's been happening to that urine. And also the temperature of that urine should be between 32 or 38 degrees Celsius if you're using Fahrenheit, 90 to 100. And temperature should be tested within four minutes of the person actually peeing. Another, uh, and you're not going to remember a lot of this stuff, and some, some... Urine uh, bottles actually come with the testing on the side. Uh, We haven't seen any of those in our practice because I'm sure they're very, very expensive. And cost containment is really important. But urine nitrate should be less than 500 mics per mil. So those are some of the just broad characteristics of urine uh, specimens. So what do you do if the urine creatinine or any of these other indices are suggesting that this urine has been tampered with? You're not... 100% 100% sure what's going on, the patient is obviously having a difficult time owning the, the choice to do this, is that what you do is you really just repeat the urine drug screen in the office. And you probably want to supervise that or observe that urine collection. But you also want to have a conversation with the patient. If the patient is refusing to have you do another urine drug sampling, they're entitled to that. But you're just going to see that as a, a need to keep a closer tab on that patient and to manage that risk. So you're going to limit the amount of access they have to that pharmacology until you can figure out what is actually going on. And when I say limit access, I'm not talking about taking the medication away. What I'm talking about is, is minimizing the quantity of tablets that they're actually going to have. How often should you do urine drug monitoring? Well, it really depends. 
How do I monitor other high-risk medications? So INRs are usually done fairly frequently, but once the patient is stable, we don't need to do them as much. It's the same principles really around urine drug monitoring or screening, is if you've got a really low-risk patient, so you've got an elderly patient who's always been compliant and adherent, you might do a urine drug sample maybe once a year. And, and I'm going to go out on a limb here, but personally, I think what we should be sending is the confirmatory test. Uh, because the point-of-care testing can be problematic. Although, if you're doing a point-of-care testing on a regular basis then you're, you, and your patient is taking the medication, there's been no additions or changes in medication or any over-the-counter medication, there should be some consistency. The challenge is the time of the day uh, where they were in the... Um, you know, are they uh, taking, if they're on a long-acting medication, are they sort of midway where the uh, threshold may drop down? You know, these are things that sort of come into mind for me. So the easy thing for me to do sometimes is just when I do a panel of testing, uh, whether it's their routine renal function that I'm checking and they're checking their electrolytes, if I do a urine drug monitoring or screening, I'll send a confirmatory test. So that's only done once a year. If the patient is moderately at risk, you may want to do it once a month. Very high-risk patients, you may do it twice a month. And of course, I know what you're going to think of is that it's a huge cost. And it is. It's one of the barriers to doing this. But uh, for me, it's uh, important to go out on a limb because I don't want to read about these patients in the obituary. And we've all been there where unexpectedly a patient has died, uh, either someone that we've seen uh, we had some concerns, but we never took it to that next level, uh, trying to monitor those patients. And it is a horrible feeling to see that happen. So this is another reason why I think it's so important to do it. And uh, it's amazing how many times in the emergency room I've been able to have really important conversations with patients just because I've done the screening uh, and been able to pick up some significant substance misuse and that patient is open to treatment. So possibly we could have sa we sa we've saved their life rather than um, then we've actually contributed or enabled them to, to carry on, especially when addiction is there because they don't know how to stop. They're just desperate for someone to, do, uh, to come in and have that conversation. So don't underestimate the power you have in that moment to change a trajectory of a disease. And I always try and come at the conversation that, wow, this is, this is a really important thing that I'm seeing here. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about this. Um, and like I said, I've had really some amazing situations where we've been able to get at the problem um, and get at the concern and then offer that patient really important treatment. Does it always happen like that? Nope. Um, I can often be told things that I'm not happy about, but that's okay. But I do let them know, I try and stay very calm and let them know that I care enough to do the testing. So we're going to stop right there because before we get into uh, some of the challenges with point-of-care and immunoassay, we just need to take some time and go through that very carefully. This is also a podcast that's done sort of that intersection between 2019 and 2020. So Happy New Year, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.